This is a mental health podcast, so difficult topics may arise. Please proceed with caution. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Better, Stories of Mental Health. I'm Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi, and we're your hosts and licensed therapists here to destigmatize mental health one episode at a time. In each episode, we dive into our guests' special experiences with mental health, coping mechanisms, and how they have embraced their own mental health journey. Today, we are joined by someone who's pioneering the discussion of masculinity from the perspective of a cis hetero male. We're excited to introduce none other than the Justin Baldoni, author of Man Enough and creator of the Man Enough podcast. Justin, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. How are you guys? Very, very nervous and good. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be. Don't be. Yeah, um, this is such an important topic, and we have some questions for you that I think will help you kind of elaborate on what your book is about. I know you have a new podcast that came out recently as well that we want to talk about, and you know, shifting, shifting everything in terms of what we know about what it means to be man enough and masculinity, mm-hmm. and what we need to do in order to make the world a better place for everybody. Love it. I'm down. Let's do it. You recently wrote a book called Man Enough, where you talk about undefining your masculinity. What does being man enough mean to you? What does being man enough mean for me? Well, it's very easy to tell you all the things that it's not, but but let's start with the things that it is. Being man enough to me means allowing yourself to feel all the things that you need to feel. It means being willing to take feedback, even when it's uncomfortable. In many ways, it means being willing to ask for feedback when you can sense that you did or said something that made somebody uncomfortable. It means being willing to apologize first before somebody tells you you hurt their feelings because you know intuitively that you said or did something that was against your moral code and that was hurtful. It means being selfless, but knowing when to be selfful. It means stopping the negative talk when you can and being patient with yourself, having compassion, not just for other people, but with yourself as well. It means being willing to make the unpopular choice and speak up and speak out, even if it means harming your own reputation in your social circle. It generally just means that you are aware and mindful of your actions, both internally and externally, and that you are working for the betterment of the world um, and not just working on yourself. Yeah. So it sounds like emotional intelligence where you're, you can be aware of your own emotions, what's going on internally, but also what's going on externally for you, which is really difficult and not something that men are typically taught, at least in our generation growing up, it was, you know, women need to learn how to be sensitive and sweet and pay attention to other people. But um, as men, it's like, be tough and boys will be boys and, you know, that rough place. So when in your life did this become something that you wanted to be aware of? Uh, in my 30s, probably. I'm, uh, I'm 37 now. I got married at 29 started dating my wife at 27 and a half to 28. You know, I was aware of this stuff in my twenties. It wasn't something that I 
spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, it's kind of like you, uh, when you're in your early twenties, you're like, yeah, one day I want to buy a house. And then you start getting ready to go to hopefully finally buy a house. And you realize there's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with it. Right. You've always thought about buying a house. You're like, Oh, I know I'm going to buy a house one day, but you don't realize how complicated the mortgage process is and the insurance and the fire insurance and the earthquake insurance. And you don't, you, now you pay your own utilities and then you have to figure out, oh, wow, there's maintenance on the house. It's no, so there's all this stuff that happens when you go from a, a concept of something that you know you want one day to actually having to have it and own it. And I think it was the same thing for me with masculinity and with this stuff is it was always in the back of my mind, knowing that like something isn't right. I don't like the way I react there. I should apologize. I probably shouldn't have said that. Why am I being a dick to her? Why am I being a dick to him? Why am I being a dick to myself? <laughs> but you don't actually take the time to go deeper and understand the root causes of those actions and those things. And it was really, I think, in my 30s, you know, having been married, um, having more success, recognizing the responsibility that comes along with that success, getting deeper into my faith, and then becoming a parent and wanting to stop that generational masculine script, if you will, that has been passed down for God knows how long. That really kind of is what got me to dig in. Yeah. And I find that with any sort of trauma or pain or just flipping the switch, flipping the script, the way to change it is when you have kids and switching the narrative within your parenting style. What do you do differently with your children compared to how you were brought up? Oh my God, so much. <laughs> so much. And then there's some things that I don't do differently. I had my dad on my podcast. We talked a little bit about this stuff, but it's been really interesting to see them watch me and Emily parent our kids because you can tell that they're learning. You know, I believe that the world is going to attempt to undo everything that I do with my children. So, like you said earlier, for my daughter, as an example, for Maya, the world's going to tell her that she can't take up too much space, that she has to fit in, that she has to be pretty, that she has to go with the flow, that she, that she, um, that she should, you know, sit cross-legged and be, and be polite. And all of the various things that the world's going to tell her, she can't be too much. And the world's going to tell my son that he should be too much, that he should take up more space, that he should use his voice and assert himself, that he should be rough and take physical risks, that he should hit back, that he should never cry, that he should not ask questions and not complain. And knowing these things, something that we're actively doing is doing the, we're, we're doing the opposite for them. So I'm not raising both kids the same in that sense. I am teaching my daughter that she can take up space, that she can be too much, that she can use her voice, that she, can, that she should take physical risks, that she can do all of these things. I try to always remind her that she can do everything the boys can do. And I have to calm that part of myself and quiet that part of myself that when I see her doing something that like makes me want to say, oh, be careful, baby, stop, that I'm like, no, if I don't say that to Maxwell, I shouldn't say that to her, to, for her to understand that she absolutely can and should express her emotions as she feels them. However, I want to teach her to get right back up again when she falls down and hurts herself, which is what I would do to my boy. And for my boy, for Maxwell, I'm teaching him what we normally teach our girls, 
which is that when he has feelings, he's got to feel them. It's okay to cry. It's uh, more than okay to cry. It's important and necessary to cry that, um, that he shouldn't um, use his voice to dominate that, that it's okay. If he wants to be smaller, he doesn't have to be big and take up all the space that physical risks don't make him more of a boy that he doesn't have to do those things. If he's scared, right. When he tells me he's scared, I stop. Oh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to jump off that. You don't have to jump off the diving board. It's okay. And I'm doing that because I know that the world is going to undo it or attempt to and do the opposite. So that's definitely one way that I'm trying to consciously raise them uh, to combat the gender norms that I know are going to be coming at them. And again, they're going to make their own choices in life. I just want to lay the foundation to let them know that they're more than what the world's going to tell them they are. They're more than the box that everybody else is going to put them in. It's such important work. And actually, we had that question written down, like, how do you raise your daughter versus your son? And is there a difference? So you answered that perfectly um, to kind of show, you know, that a dynamic that you you have to have at home. Also, we watched your TED Talk. Um, I think it was in 2017 that you made that TED Talk, if we're not mistaken. It was and 2017, like a week, week or a week and a half after my son was born. Okay. Yes. And you mentioned how... I think your relationship with your dad, you talked about how he was, I guess, soft is what you used or the word, you know, where you, you sensitive, cry. Yeah, sensitive, soft. yeah. And so um, so you resented him because of that. You were then, you became sensitive as well. And do you worry at all that that will happen with your children, that they'll develop this resentment because of sensitivity or... Yeah, how does that? No, work? I'm not worried about that. I know they're going to be. I know they're going to be resentful of other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what because I don't know anyone who isn't resentful of their parents. Yeah. yeah. So I know they're going to be resentful of other things. They're probably going to be resentful of how much time I've spent working and my, you know, addiction on my phone and all of that kind of stuff, which I'm still working on. But I don't know if they're going to have a resentment to sensitivity because I'm a, I'm also a bit different than my dad. I grew, you know, when we moved to this small town in Oregon from LA, you know, I watched all these other boys have these very like outdoor, you know, very stereotypically manly men fathers. And my dad was like working, uh, you know, flying back and forth to LA and wasn't, wasn't always there, showed up for every one of my games, but wasn't just, you know, wasn't there. My mom was there most of the time. And he was also very sensitive and uh, which is beautiful. And he never really got mad and he cared deeply about all of us and he loves my mom. And, you know, it just wasn't what you saw growing up. And as a young boy, you always compare yourself to what you think you should be. And so I was, you know, I was seeing these other boys who were tougher than me and who knew how to ride like quads and all these types of things and had no fear jumping off of bridges and high rocks. And that just wasn't me. And so I was, I didn't like myself. I didn't like myself because I wasn't that. And therefore I then didn't like my dad because I was like, oh, it's his fault. Now this wasn't stuff that I thought about then. This is stuff that I was processing later on, like in therapy and things like that. So for my kids, what I'm teaching them is arguably like the toughest thing you can do and be is vulnerable. So if they're ever resentful of me for teaching him to be sensitive, then that's fine. Because I know I have a healthy relationship with 
who I am in that sense. And I'll tell him and I'll teach him. I'll say, like, you could be resentful of me all you want, but I gave you the strongest thing you could possibly have, which is your empathy and your compassion and your sensitivity. If you don't want to be those things, that's fine. Uh, but for, for me as a man to be strong in that is strength. And that's what I don't think a lot of men get. You know, when I get, when I get these, you know, keyboard courage warriors out there, like trying to say negative things or call me beta and all the kinds of things that, you know, these really deeply insecure, fragile men um, do when they feel or see somebody who's living in their truth or their purpose and they feel intimidated because of their lack of self-worth. When I see these men attack, like whether it's my TED talk or various things, I find it so interesting because if you think about what actually makes a man strong in the stereotypical definition of strength, this idea of a sense of purpose and direction and courage and strength and all these things, being perfectly honest, the shit that I'm doing, there's nothing stronger. Like you go write a book, dude, about all your deep insecurities and your flaws. Go ahead. You go put yourself in conversations over and over and over again where you're challenged in questions. Do you think it's fun to talk about this stuff? No, it's not. But I'm doing it. Why? Because it has to be done because somebody's got to talk about it. And you didn't step forward, so I'm going to do it. And what's stronger than that? So you can actually take, that's the idea of man enough. It's, 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 it's repurposing these phrases that have been used to hurt us. You can take these traditionally masculine ideas and ideals, you can flip them on their heads and you can look at it and you can see, okay, the stuff that I'm doing, the stuff that guys like Tony Porter and Ted Bunch are doing and Jackson Katz and, you know, a lot of the, anybody who steps out against the status quo is literally being the definition of masculine. And nobody gets that. The men don't actually get that. It's just not in conformity with their narrow views of what they think masculine should be or what it has been for years, which we know has gotten us nowhere. Look at our world. Look at our earth. Sure, it's better than it was before, but that's thanks to the advent of technology and and a little bit of a uh, uh, collective sense of um, community and enlightenment to a certain extent. But we're still we're still living in the dark ages in terms of where we are as a world with compassion and empathy. Uh, anyways, that's my rant for the day. Yeah. Thanks for coming, it, thanks for coming to my new TED talk. <laughs> it brought me back to a place a couple, a, a couple months ago, actually, my sister had a baby and my fiance started crying, but he went into the corner to cry because he didn't want anyone to see him. And yeah, immediately after I had your book and I was like, you need to read this, like start reading this and learn that that is actually a strength. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed. You don't have to hide about it. So now he's on a new journey, thanks mm. to the book, thanks to you. But it's so important to just like redefine and shift the whole idea of what strength actually is. And in your TED Talk, you mentioned that being sensitive is having strength. And I think for all our listeners, male, female, whoever is listening, that's a big takeaway here. Mm -hmm. Well, just think about how backwards the idea of looking at sensitivity is weaknesses. It's just so backwards, even down... You know, even down to, I talk about this in the book a little bit, but just think about our, just think about our genitalia, right? Look at, compare the, compare the male and the female. And we so often, it's so funny as men, we so often use phrases uh, like don't be a pussy or a vagina or whatever, when we want to put men down. And then we often say grow some balls 
Now, sure, the balls uh, are part of what's responsible for the growing of testosterone, which makes us masculine, right? Quote, unquote, masculine. But in reality, the balls are far more sensitive than the vagina, right? In a very different way. I mean, look, what happens when you see a guy get kicked in the balls in the soccer field or the football field or a low blow? I mean, you can do anything you want in UFC, but you can't hit somebody in the balls, right? There's a couple exceptions, right? Throat balls, things like that. Why? Because our balls are so damn sensitive. But yet we use the female genitalia to put ourselves down when we're trying to get somebody to do something right? Again, sensitivity. So if we thought, if we really think about it, and we really think that we're strong as men, then if anything, we should be thinking that sensitivity is strength. Well, if balls, if we want to grow some balls and be strong, well, our balls are really sensitive. So we should maybe think that that, oh, well, that's strength then. And we don't, we don't ever think about these types of things. Sensitivity is the thing that allows us to be human. I was doing an interview uh, when the book came out and I was just, you know, doing, I was back and forth and doing podcast after podcast and interview after interview. And sometimes I would get people to challenge me and for fun, I was like, all right, all right, let's just, let's just think about what are all the masculine qualities and all the feminine qualities. And I just p- pulled up Google. So for you two, give me, give me like five or a couple masculine qualities. What do you got? Uh, strong, confident, uh, fearless, brave. And feminine. Handy. Okay. Feminine, uh, sensitive, emotional, caring, nurturing, empathetic. Okay. I was looking at all of these things and I was imagining, all right, if I'm Elon Musk and I want to build the next generation of robots or um, robots that can, I don't know, conquer an empire or build something, I would want to, I would want to create these robots with all masculine characteristics and attributes. Because I want the robot to be strong. I want the robot to be fearless. Well, who wants a robot that has fear, right? That's the, who wants that? You want the robot to, be, to, to, be, to take direction. You don't want the robot to ask you questions and question your authority. You want, you, you want the robot to be all of these things. But if you want to give that robot life and make it human, you give it all the feminine qualities. You give it empathy so that it can feel. You give it compassion. You give it sensitivity. Nobody wants a robot to be human, then it's a human. You want a robot to stay in order and fall in line and take direction and do exactly what you want it to do. The second you want to make a human, you give it the feminine. And yet as men, every single day, we grow up and we reject the feminine at the expense of our humanity. Because we're told that in order to pledge allegiance to a club that doesn't even exist, to be considered a man, to keep our man card, to be one of the boys, then we have to reject and kill off all the parts of ourselves that are feminine. And when we do that, we're dehumanizing ourselves and we're doing it at the expense of women. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that because my friends and people I've met in my life, even as a therapist, and Nadia and I were talking about this yesterday, where we'll hear our friends say something like, yeah, he's like really tough, but like if you saw him in private, you would know that he's really caring and and he cried in front of me. And like, it's a, it's a thing that we say to each other. It's like, oh yeah, my husband, my fiance, my boyfriend, he cries in front of me. Like you should see him. He's so sweet. He's not this macho guy you see in public. And then Nadia was mentioning how every single time a man calls 
her office for a therapy appointment, they ask for a female therapist um, instead of a male. And so it's almost like you have to like be this like chameleon. You have to shift who you are and you can only be sensitive around women. But there's like your male cards taken out if. Well, that's because we've also been taught that women are the only ones that can hold us because women won't judge us. See, men use vulnerability against each other. We've been taught at a very young age as boys that we have to kill off those parts of ourselves, not because women are are going to reject us, but because other men are going to use those things against us. So this is for, this is from a very early age as young boys. This is, this is just our field experiments growing up just as human beings. We can't be sensitive. We can't be vulnerable because other boys will use those things to attack us or to put us down to build themselves up, right? That's how the patriarchy works. It's a power dynamic. It's a power game. All of us are, are trying to get the power and you, only, and you get the power by putting people down to build yourself up, right? You're literally stepping on other people to get to the top. And when you get to the top, you got to stay there. That's what it is in school. So we're taught growing up that we have to kill those parts of ourselves. Bell Hooks calls it soul murder, a psychic act of self-mutilation. And, and so, of course, growing up then, we start to date women if we are hetero and heterosexual relationships, we start to date women. And those women end up not just being our sexual partners and our romantic love interests, but our therapists. And then we know what happens from there. We're asking women to hold all of our stuff. We're asking women to hold our pain, our frustrations, and also to be available and in the mood whenever we want to have sex and to be the caretakers of our children, blah, 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 blah. And we wonder, we wonder why women are struggling so much. We wonder why there's such a fight for equality and why men are not awake to, of course, men don't want women to wake up. We're going to lose our therapists. (laughs) We're going to lose all the free labor that's allowing us to go to work, right? Even though deep down that work is making us deeply unhappy. We're convincing ourselves that that work is is our direction and our purpose. And and we're doing this for the family we're providing, but deep down, we all want more. So again, we don't even know how we feel about these things. So of course, yes, men are going to call and they're going to say, I'm going to feel much more comfortable with a female therapist because in the back of their minds, they're saying to themselves, this guy might judge me. This guy might want to challenge me. A lot of men have no idea what it's like to have a, a true friend, brotherhood, non-judgmental relationship that has nothing to do with competition or hierarchy where there's space that can be held for their deepest flaws and insecurities and fears. Most men don't know that. We don't have those friends. It's so hard to make those friends because we've never been taught how to. In order to make those friends, you have to turn off the game. You have to not go to the bar and have a drink between you. You have to see another person at their lowest or be willing to talk about the things that that make you vulnerable to attack. And yes, of course, a lot of men have deep friendships like that, but oftentimes those friendships come because those, those friends have seen or been around when, one, when that man is struggling, when he lost his father or his brother or went through that breakup. And we've seen those men at their lowest. And as men, we don't like to be in that situation. We don't like to be on the bottom. We don't like to be unable to get out of bed or depressed. But if we ever are and there's another man there, there's like this bond. It's like going to war. It's like platoons. You know, you have you see guys come back from the war and they're either 
closer than they've ever been or they can't be around each other because it's there's PTSD. But we shouldn't have to go to war in order to forge deep male friendships. We have to we have to normalize it in, in the way that that women um, have normalized how they make friends. Most of the women I know, if they're going to go out and get to know another woman, how do you do that? It's not just shopping. It's not just those types of things. No. How do you get to know another woman? You share something personal. And then the response is you share something personal back. And then you forge that relationship based on these deep, vulnerable, personal feelings. That's, that's how, that's the, that's at the, at the moment from my understanding as a, as a man and all of my dealings with women, that's kind of the social contract that I've seen women have men. It's the opposite. Men can go 10, 15 years of friendship with other men and not know the depths of what a woman can share the first time she's spending time with another woman. Glennon Doyle writes about this in Untamed, right? It's just, it's, it happens over and over and over again. And it's almost ridiculous. Like that these are such, that these are such outlandish uh, generalizations that are rooted in such deep truths. Absolutely. So true. I, I'm just genuinely curious, how have your relationships with men changed since you, like you mentioned, you were in your thirties and that's when you really started getting in tune with who you are. Have you noticed big differences, whether it's friendships, family, acquaintances? Yeah. For sure. I, I've definitely noticed, I, you know, it, again, masculinity and all of this stuff, it's not something that you can snap your fingers and unlearn in a day. So what I've noticed is that I have deep, deep male friendships. And I've also noticed my own resistance to cultivating those friendships or to calling and reaching out to men when I need it because of my standing in my friend group, because I am the guy who's out there publicly talking about vulnerability because I am the guy who's doing all of this stuff and I am successful and I have all of these quote unquote, like masculine things in my life and arguably, and you know, and my group of friends is I'm probably one of the most successful in this way. So, so in the back of my mind, I also have the most to lose because there's still a part of me that wonders if each of if each one of my close male friends secretly wants me to fail so that they can feel better about themselves. Secretly wants me to confess that I'm struggling or hopes that my marriage isn't as good as it really is because it makes them feel better. That's how it works with us men. That's what we do. I mean, it works that way with humans. Let's be honest. It's not just men, but as humans, we love watching people fail to make ourselves feel better, right? When they're successful. What do we love to do as a society? We love to hold people accountable. We love to bring them down. Sometimes we love to build them back up too, so long as they apologize and they take accountability. But we love that feeling because deep down, I think it makes us feel better with, with where we are in our lives because all of us are struggling. So I've noticed that there is a part of me that absolutely feels that same resistance, even in my life with my closest friends who know all my shit because it's hard. It's still hard for me because I'm still socialized. I have 30... 30 something years of socialization to undo. It doesn't just happen overnight. So I work towards it slowly. I go to therapy. I talk about it with other people that are not my friends. I go to lots of therapy, multiple therapy. We have a couples therapist, I have a personal therapist. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. And it's through that that I then have to understand what's underneath that resistance. I have to name it. I have to feel it. I have to go into it. And I have to be like, Justin, don't be an idiot. Just call. Hey, say you got to talk. 
Do you find that you're accepted with open arms and with that vulnerability back when you reach out to your male friends or do you feel that resistance coming from them as well? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's always this awkward phase. There's always an awkward phase with men where it needs to become a conscious choice. It's never, it's not ever easy and simple because we don't have the generational social contracts that women have where it's rewarded and applauded and it's a, and it's a way to get to know each other with men. There's like this uncomfortable thing, which is why we love to do it while we're playing sports or while we're working out or while we're doing an activity, because it takes the pressure off off of that sharing nine times out of 10. Yeah. It's met with like open arms and, and then sometimes you got to also remember that as men, we're not trained with this stuff. So we don't always know how to hold it or how to respond. So I remember early on, one of my best friends, one of my best friends, Travis, uh, we've been friends for God, like almost 18 years now. I remember in my early twenties, I was going through a period where I, I lost a lot of family members and Travis is like, you know, Georgia, Abercrombie, you know, white boy raised in a way where those types of like, he didn't have a vocabulary for it. And we've talked about this and, and, you know, his dad never expressed vulnerability and, and, you know, you don't cry all of these types of things. And I remember being so vulnerable and like, and I think I was calling him from the hospital. I was like, my grandma was in hospice. My, my, my one grandma had just died. My grandpa was in the hospital. My, I was going back and forth visiting my other grandma in hospice. And I was just like in this tailspin. And I remember I was like sharing with him what I was feeling. And he goes like, Oh, that sucks, man. Like, Oh, that must suck, man. It was like one of those types oh. of things. <laughs> and, and it wasn't his fault. We were like 21. He had no idea what to, how to hold my pain. I had no idea how to share my pain and I didn't even know what it was, but I was just like, in that moment I knew, Oh, I can't be vulnerable. And so I kept it in. Now we've talked about it, of course, many times since then. And he's so much better at it now. In fact, he initiates many of these conversations with me now, which has been so beautiful to see in our relationship and how that's changed over the last 20 years. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's just about like practicing and understanding that like there's going to be resistance. The other man might not know how to hold that, but at the same time, we have to try but that's also why therapy is so damn important. Like we have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zones and talk about shit that we just never talk about. Otherwise, all it does is turn into rage, which as we know is the only socially acceptable thing that we're allowed to feel as men. That's why we default to anger and rage. It's just look at the world. All you, everywhere you look, any, any act of violence or things that are happening, it's all men that are angry. It's all unexpressed sadness, <laughs> loneliness, shame, insecurity, projected into, into anger, fear. That's what's happening all over the world, which is why I'm just like, God, if I could snap my fingers and from the time we're born, every man would be taught that sharing is strength and that and and we were all paired with a therapist, even though, as we know, let's just be honest, there's also a lot of shitty therapists. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh. And that's a whole nother conversation. But the things, the stories that I've heard from also from men of things that therapists have said, I'm like, oh, my God, you got to find a new therapist. So we got to also increase the trading for therapists, um, especially male therapists. But that's a, that's for another time. 
the vast majority of therapists are trained to know what they're doing. And God, how many deaths could we avoid every year? How many suicides could we prevent? Right? Just how many mass shootings would have never happened? Had somebody just had a conversation with that boy or with that man and given him a shoulder to cry on or a space to feel the things that he wasn't allowed to feel. Now, of course, there's mental illness and there's all types of things in the spectrum, but how do we deal with mental illness? Therapy also. Medical intervention. We have to, we have to, to collectively take a step back and look at how we're treating each other and recognize that our mental health is is got to be a top priority in all of our lives. Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, as we were talking about, you know, men hide these emotions and they bond over, you know, football games and, you know, cars and that kind of thing and not necessarily emotions. And women, we bond because like when I met Nadia, it's like, here's my life. Here's all the crap I've struggled with. You know, like, do you like me? Like, (laughs) you know, it's like right away we share experiences and we try to find commonality with emotion. And you're mentioning how that leads to, you know, all this like rage and anger um, with with men. And so it's also like intrusive thoughts. Like we work with anxiety a lot of the times and we find that the more like I, I, my my personal like TikTok account, when we talk about like intrusive thoughts, we're like, oh my God, this is normal. Wait, this happens to people. And so many people take their own lives because of it. And I feel like men it, with emotions, like feeling things they quote unquote shouldn't be feeling because it's not manly, it can also lead to that rage and that anger and suicide because they feel like this isn't, I'm not man enough. I shouldn't be feeling these these emotions. Um, so it's really important the work that you're doing because of that to, to normalize this, that it doesn't shift just because of your gender. Trigger warning for the next segment, suicide. And my heart goes out to all of those men. Makes me want to cry. Who who think that because of a life circumstance or because of because of their you know who knows maybe because they got a divorce and the wife got the kids or because they lost their job and they can't provide or because they're struggling with something physically or because of a mental health disorder that these men are not worthy of being alive and staying here. That breaks my heart because we have to look at what we're collectively teaching our boys and these men, and what we've been doing for years and years and years. So we're telling them that they have to be robots. They have to be a certain way in order to be deemed valued and worthy as a human. And it's killing us. It's absolutely killing us. And what we don't, what, what a lot of these men who don't understand the work that at least I'm trying to do, what they don't see is that the same thing that's hurting women, the same thing that, that is holding women back, the suppressing women, that is, that is creating a world in which women don't feel safe around men, that's putting one in four women at risk of being sexually assaulted and raped in their lifetime is doing the same thing to men, but we don't talk about it. Hurt people hurt people. One in five boys will be molested before the age of 10. Well, what's going to happen to those boys? 
isn't it interesting how similar the numbers are? I'm not making excuses and justifying sexual assault or rape. But look at the numbers. Boys are being molested before they're even hitting puberty. And girls are being raped and assaulted after. I'm not drawing a direct line, but I'm saying it doesn't require a lot of thought to see women in general. And I, and I say this, Bell Hooks writes about this in a will to change. Women in general are not doing the raping. In general, they're not doing the assaulting. There's always going to be outliers. Men are. And men are hurting. Men are killing themselves at nearly four times a higher rate than women. And when they do it, it's the last resort. They do it violently. So it guarantees an, a certain death. At the very least, we know that when women do it, it's still a cry for help. There's a part of them that doesn't want to truly die. They just want to be found and have somebody to talk to. I was, actually, Esther Perel, Esther Perel ta- told me this when we, her and I were first talking. There's a reason. There's, there's data that shows why men kill themselves at higher rates. It's because by that point, it's final. They don't want to be found. They don't want an unsuccessful suicide attempt. That would be even worse. It's killing us. It's hurting us. It's killing women and it's killing men. It's hurting our boys and our girls. The same system is hurting all of us. It's so much deeper. It's so much deeper than we realize. And we just have to normalize being open and vulnerable, not shaming shaming each other and recognizing that sensitivity, compassion, empathy, vulnerability, these are strengths. These are our superpowers, if we will. And I write about in the book, there was, a, there was a study that showed that there's a chance that men can even potentially be more sensitive than women from birth. Because, we sh- because they were showed pictures and they were me- the, the reaction of these photos were measured. I don't, know if it was, I don't remember if it was photos or videos. And they found that men actually reacted faster than women. It was like a millisecond faster than women. The first time they were shown the image, I think it was a, it was like a, an, like an image that would elicit a lot of emotion, right? But the second time was slower. And the third time was even slower. Whereas women stayed the same. They were, they, they, they showed that they, they were able to stay sensitive. Whereas men knew I have to protect myself and drown out my sensitivity. So there's even, who knows, there, there could even be a biological, uh, there's, there could be a biological marker that shows that men are even more sensitive than women. That'd be interesting to find out. Who knows if there is. But what we do know is that men are socialized to kill that sensitivity, whereas women are encouraged and rewarded for having yeah, it's like nurturing. You have to be nurturing. And yeah. man, you have to be strong. Like we, we talk, the robot you mentioned earlier, it's exactly what that is. So for our male listeners right now, where do they start? Or where would you recommend they start if they're feeling inspired and ready to change or work on some things? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. I think the first step is you got to read. I think as men, we got to read. And if you don't read, listen to audiobooks, right? On your way to work, take a couple minutes to yourself. Read something that challenges you. Read Man Enough. I'm, I'll plug my own book. I wrote it for you. It's not, not going to tell you how to be a man. I use my story as a way to invite you into yours. Read, read books by women. Read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Read, read um, <clears throat> A Will to Change from Bell Hooks. 
read boys and sex by Peggy Ornstein, like read. Um, the simplest thing you can do though, is take stock and think about all your male friends and think about the one that you know, won't judge you. The one that, you know, might be struggling or going through something and make an effort to shoot a text or to make a phone call and say, Hey, do you want to talk? I'm going through something. I feel like I got to talk to somebody. Just make that effort. If the guy rejects you, fine. The second step, open up your browser, go to Yelp and look up a therapist in your area, right? If you can't afford a therapist or you don't have insurance, I think BetterHelp is an example. There's a lot of places that can that you can go to. It's not like you're alone and there's no chance for you. And if you can't do that, then you got to read. Because it's through reading that we start to realize that we're not alone and we see other people's stories and we can then connect the dots. Um, There's so many great books out there on this subject. So those would be the first steps. The other thing is you got to rewire your brain and recognize that, that these times in your life when you are out in the world and you're feeling something and you feel your armor go up, um, those are times when you have to go deeper. The way I kind of think about it, like, um, you know, those old, those castles back in the day, those in the medieval times. And when there was an enemy coming, they had these huge gates. They would close the gates, right? To prevent, to prevent attack. That is, that is what we do as men emotionally. Close the gates, right? We do that every single day. In little things and big things. We do it in our relationships with our partners. Um, we do that with our families. We do that with our children. We do that in our workplace. We do that with our friends. The second it becomes too much, we close the gates. And when we close those gates, we have to look at why we're doing it. So it comes with being willing to ask yourself questions. In the book, I talk about the why ladder, this idea of asking why more than once. And getting to the root of the answer. If you're at work and somebody says something and you kind of shut down and those gates close, why? Go into that feeling. If you're if you're married and you're in a hetero relationship and you're talking to your wife about something and you get angry, but yet she didn't do anything, the gates close. Ask yourself why. You're hanging out with your boys and you feel the need to like put somebody else down to build yourself up and you notice you did it. And nobody says anything because it's normal, but you don't feel great about it because you're a good person. And you know, that was a moral ambiguity. Ask yourself why train yourself to ask yourself how you feel and why, and give yourself permission to, because as a man, have some compassion and empathy for yourself and know that you were never allowed to do that. It's not your fault. You were told not to do that. Now it's time to start doing it. Such great tips. And your podcast too. We've been listening to your podcast. Yeah, and, it's and that's so, an easy, that's a really yeah. easy way. I mean, yeah. And, and, yeah. and the, the, the final thing, we listen to the Man Enough podcast. I mean, you can just hear us talk about it. Shit, I talk, you watch me do it in real time on the podcast. You know, there's episodes coming up where I'm challenged and I have to like really look at that and be like, huh, how do I feel about that? And you see me go through it in real time. You see my buddy, Jamie, my best friend go through it in real time with, with our, you know, uh, guest host or co-host Liz, um, podcasts are another great way because you can, you can listen and you can learn 
and there's no social interaction. You don't have to worry about any of that judgment. Right. Yeah. It's such a powerful way. It's easy. You can be cleaning your house. You, you don't yeah. have to take extra just time listen. for it. You just put it in your ears and just keep listening you know. to this podcast with you two. First of all, if you found this podcast, you're already on the right track. Exactly. That's the first step, right? <laughs> exactly. Validation for the fact that you're even listening to the podcast. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. then, and chances are you should be thanking the woman who told you to listen to the podcast because it's uh, the women. That's probably why you got it. <laughs> <laughs> all women send it to the men in your lives, <laughs> especially this episode, right? Um, I want to talk about something that you posted on Instagram. Instagram a few days ago, uh, you posted that you've often struggled with body image insecurities and a complicated and confusing relationship with your body. And that's something that is not typically talked about in the world of men. It's like so normal with women, almost never. Yeah. Like I, I, I haven't really heard it much even, you know, as a therapist. So first of all, how do you come to terms with that as a man? And how did you even identify that? That takes a lot of self-awareness. Um, to even know that that's going on with you. You struggled with the body dysmorphia, I think you said. So can you share with us, how does that, what, what's your experience with this? We're so honored to have the chance to talk about masculinity and what it means to be a man with Justin. We talk about how his father impacted his childhood and how Justin was afraid to show his emotions and seem weak to others. But now he's teaching his kids to be confident in themselves, not be afraid to cry, show how they really feel, and be open about their emotions. We love listening to Justin's take on his childhood, the harmfulness of masculinity, and being open about your emotions and wearing them on your sleeves. We know him from his oftentimes shirtless masculine roles on TV, but in this episode, Justin opens up about manhood and how to be a better man and person in general. Mental health is just as important as our physical health. If you find yourself needing to talk to somebody, BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. It's way more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available and it makes getting therapy easier. Just schedule your message, phone or video session and complete it from your phone in your car, in your home or wherever you are. Huge shout out to Justin for telling the story of his life, for recognizing the trauma that he experienced, and for being willing to talk about getting help. There's a special offer for Getting Better listeners. Get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash getting better. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help.com slash getting better. You know, it's funny. I'm going to push back. I don't think it takes a lot of self-awareness. I think okay. it takes a lot of courage to talk about it, but I think we're all aware. I think all of us men are aware. Here's how I know. The amount of times I've seen other men react to my fit body tells me and shows me how aware we are. Because see, what was interesting with me is that growing up, I was the skinny kid, right? And then I was, of course, shamed for being the skinny kid and made to not feel enough because I didn't have muscles. And, you know, eventually you want to grow muscles because society tricks us into thinking that women want them. But in reality, we want to grow muscles to impress other men. Right. And that's just the truth. And if you're a dude listening to this, here's the real deal. You're not growing muscles and getting ripped for women. You're doing it for the validation and praise of other men. That's women just the like reality. Dad bots, and if right? you're willing to go deeper, you'll realize that what I'm saying is true because women could give two shits. They might mm -hmm. at first like a good body, but that lasts you weeks before they realize you have no personality. So 
at the end of the day, it's about who you are, right? Um, and you want to be, we want big muscles because big muscles equals this, the myth of the alpha big muscles equals the idea that I can protect and I can keep, I can keep somebody uh, safe, right? Or I can kick somebody's ass. And also not from me, women challenge women and it's all the time. There's a lot of women out there who want a big, strong man. We also have to recognize that women have their own internal misogyny, right? Women have been socialized to think that men need to be a certain way as well, that men need to keep them safe. My whole feeling is like, hey, let's just, you want to get down to the quote unquote brass tacks of it all. The idea that you need to be big and strong to keep a woman safe is, is the exact reason that we're in the situation in the first place. Who are you keeping the woman safe from? Other men. Well, that work needs to start before. That work starts with you and your friends. That, doesn't, that work doesn't start out in the world. That work starts with you and your friends. And how often do you really, how often have we really had to protect our women? How many, like, I don't know any man in my life, at least, and I know that there are men that exist. I don't know any man in my personal life who have had to fend off another man who is trying to attack his girlfriend. It's so rare. Most of the attacks that happen on women happen when women are alone and at night. It's not when you're out with a guy. It's super rare. Of course it happens. But this myth that we're all getting big and strong and like doing all this stuff for our women is just bullshit. It's not real. So we have this idea that we need to be a certain way. And what I noticed is when I finally got big and strong, right, which was really about overcompensation, I noticed how it made other men feel. And I saw how other men would feel insecure around me. And so, I, cause I was like, I was always taking off my shirt cause I felt confident and I felt great. And I wanted to show off for the women. And of course there's like women checking me out and be like, Ooh, damn, you know, look at that. And then, yeah, cause we're, cause we're all animalistic. We all have that desire and we can appreciate aesthetic beauty when we see it, but it's different for men than it is for women. And I saw how insecure men were around my body. And I thought that was so interesting, but it made me feel like a stronger, more powerful man because I was able to make other men feel insecure, right? The fact that other men would feel insecure and then shame me for having my shirt off shows me that we are aware of our, of our bodies, even though we never talk about it. I'll oh, put your shirt on, man. Come on. Why? Oh, Justin's got his shirt off again. Jesus, he's always, will you put a fucking shirt on, please? Right? Why would we say that if we didn't feel a certain way about our own selves? I then found myself in situations where then I was losing a version of what I thought I had. And I was then feeling that about other guys who were more fit than me. And you know, the fastest way to feel shitty about yourself, scrolling through Instagram and seeing people who look better than you. We do it all day long. We are addicted to that. And we wonder, it's like, all we're doing is constantly searching. We're like following all these all these people who are fit models, their lives are literally influencing us to buy their protein powders <laughs> and buy their workout packages. That's their job. And we're comparing ourselves to these people that all they, all they do all day long is work out. That's not a sustainable way of life. And you can't win either way. Like you if, you, if way. you think about yeah, if you think about it, like you take your shirt off, you feel fit. They make fun of you. They say something. You don't look that way. They say something. And exactly. Like, no matter what it is, right? Which is why you have so many guys I believe who've just said, fuck it. And they grow their big bellies. And then we say, oh, that's a real man. See the beer belly. Why? 
because men are in control of the social narratives, right? So we don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We're exhausted from working out all day. We just want to turn on the sports and watch a game. We grow beer bellies. And then it becomes socially acceptable to have big beer bellies. And we're like, oh, he's a man's man. That's just an excuse for us. Yeah. Exactly. We set the social norms based on like what we decide is fair, which is why we've been doing the same thing and, uh, and sexualizing and objectifying women's bodies forever because we're in control of that social narrative. So when somebody like me comes out and says like, okay, let's be real. I have body image issues. It's really weird for people because to most people I have quote unquote, like the, the Adonis body. But when I look in the mirror, I don't see that because as the young boy, I was bullied for being too skinny because I follow all these fucking social influencers and I, I'm starting to unfollow them and I'm comparing myself to them because my six pack doesn't look the way that it used to because I'm like 19% body fat right now, but I'm healthy and I'm learning, you know what? I'm going to take off my shirt anyways. It's okay. Who am I trying to impress? I have it. I have my wife. I have my children. I have my career. What do I need? What, who, who, what social points am I trying to get? The difference now for me is that I'm learning that what I want to be is healthy. What I want to be is agile and mobile. I don't need to be like huge with 0% body fat. That's not what I need in my life at 37 years old. What I, what I need right now is to be able to throw my kids around in the pool and not throw my back out. That's what I need right now. And what I don't want is to have my worth as a man constantly over the course of my life validated by how my body looks or doesn't look. Because the older you get, the harder it is. Mm -hmm. 50, 60, 70 years old? No, my worth at that point are my acts of service. They're my actions. They're what I've done with my life. They're the choices that I make. It's not what my body looks like. So I'm very worried about this entire generation and what's going to happen to them when they can't keep their bodies up. I've, I'm worried about my friends that are fitness influencers. Your entire income is based on how your body looks. Everything in your life from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed is about your body fat and your six pack and your aesthetics. At some point, that's going to get really hard. And then you're going to have to get into to chemicals to keep you that way and to hormones to keep you that way. And if that's your entire sense of self-worth, where do you go from here? What do you do? That's what I'm worried about for the next generation. And kids, just like pornography, are finding fitness at a younger and younger age. And that's being validated by kids in their class. They're trying to get six packs. They're dieting at 13, 14 years old. When I was running track and running a, you know, four, four, 40, I was eating, I was eating like fast food every day, all day long. <laughs> Thank God I could then. <laughs> now there's like clean eating and this and this, and sure it's healthy for you, but we're not doing it. We're doing it for social validation. We're doing it for likes for that Pavlovian-like response that we get when we post something. At the end of the day, we all have to be gentle with ourselves and with others and recognize that we have bodies, but we are not our bodies. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with being fit. I, I'm still, I'm actually at the moment trying to get fit again, but not for likes and for social praise. 
because I know that at 37 years old, I still have that in me. I still have the muscle memory. I want, I like the feeling of being able to move and to run and to jump and not pull something. I like the feeling of feeling strong so I can throw my kids around or honestly pick up my wife and carry her into the bedroom without hurting myself. I love that feeling. So what I'm going for is fitness for that feeling. That's the difference. And what I write about in the book, especially in chapter two, is there's nothing wrong with trying to get the six pack or trying to get big and strong. The question is, what are you doing it for? What's underneath? What's underneath that desire? Is it insecurity? Or is it, is it, does it, is it coming from a place of, of, I desire this because of that? Is it, is it masking something that you're not dealing with? Or is it because you actually want to achieve something? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a fitness influencer. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we're doing it to, to, to cover something else, if we're doing it to make up for another part of our lives, right? If we're doing it for reasons that we don't even know we're doing it, that's when it becomes unhealthy for social acceptance and validation, mm-hmm. for likes and praise, to sleep with girls or to get respect from guys, whatever that stuff is. That's what it's all about. Go to the core of it. Recognize why you're doing it. And so long as you can make peace with that, then do it. It's about values. It's about the the values and the internal locus of control rather than that like external locus of control. And I think with anything in life, not just with your body or with anything, I think, you know, even with career choices, with friend choices, with activity choices, if you really take a look internally and say, why am I doing this? Why do I want this much money? Why do I want to look like this? Why do I want to make friends like this? If you look at that why, then your life will eventually fall into the places that you want it to fall into. The money one is huge. Mm-hmm. What you just said is really funny. So last week, uh, Glennon Doyle posted something that um, really resonated with me. It's kind of like what you just said. She said, adulthood is saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit over and over again until you die. <laughs> and and that's really it. It's like we like we have to ask ourselves, well, when is enough? When like if we want things to slow down and we're and we keep making excuses and we keep saying like, oh, next week it'll it'll happen. Well, at some point we actually have to, you know, take the bull by the horns, if you will, to give, you know, here's a masculine quote, and and to actually make it happen. If you want things to slow down, then we got to slow down. What is enough money? Do we ever think about that as men? Okay, you know what? This is, this is the amount of money that I think if I could make, then I would feel safe. Not some absurd amount of money. Not what you see on Instagram with like guys and yachts and all this. Kind of like, what's the amount of money that's, that's like, what do you need for your family? Great. That's a goal. That's fine. And you know what? Most people will, won't be in a situation where they can make that much money. But we can still make positive choices with our time. And it doesn't all have to be about money and work, which is, again an addiction in itself. This has been like such an amazing conversation, uh, amazing, important, very, very important topics. And I hope that every single man out there can can hear this and woman so that they can send it to the men in their lives as well. <laughs> it's important for everybody. So thank you. So on this episode, Justin Baldoni 
speaks from his personal experience as a cis heteronormative man. And he he often reflects back on that as he has these conversations. You know, just keep in mind that um, this is based mostly on his own personal experience. Um, But I think relationships in general, no matter how you identify, I think the conversations that he was having about strength and vulnerability Mm -hmm. and crying is applicable to everyone, no matter what your gender identity is. So what was your favorite part about talking to Justin? (laughs) All of it. No, I just think everything he said was so insightful. And so many things that were mentioned were things that a lot of people in society can benefit from. I mentioned specifically about a certain situation where I gave my fiance his book because I think it's so important. And what I also think is important to remember is that when we talk about men who are defined as masculine using like certain traits. So we mentioned strength, bravery, courage, that's learned behavior. So we're not blaming anybody. We're not saying you're wrong for being this way. We're saying that you learn this behavior from a young age and it became so normalized in you that that's who you are. And now it's kind of up to all of us together, men, women, non-binary, every single person in the world to do the work, to take back those definitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there doesn't need to be a definition for Mm -hmm. how a certain person who identifies as a certain gender needs to behave. We're just human. And I love that, that you took that away from that conversation because I did too. And like, you gave your fiance his book. Um, I think I should do the same with my husband (laughs) because it's often like, I mean, I I have seen my husband cry and I think that to me, I made me respect him more. You know, I think I often men, those who identify as men um, may feel like they shouldn't cry because it makes them weak or maybe the the girlfriend or the wife or the partner will not respect them and maybe will feel like, oh, they're weaker and they're not strong enough. But to me, I do see it as like when you cry in front of me, it's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So I then drop everything. It's like my guard goes down. I don't know if it's a respect thing for me or if it's just like created this safe space where you feel open to cry. But also... I cry in front of everybody. Yeah. So I don't think anyone needs that, like, or should need that safe space in order to cry without feeling judged. And I think that's something we also have to work towards for men. Yeah. And women, because I know many women that don't feel safe crying. And it's that's why I'm saying, like, this conversation, he's talking yeah. about it from his perspective. But I have friends that will not even talk about themselves going through a breakup because they don't want to put themselves in that vulnerable position to potentially cry. Ah. Um, so I think I think it's like powerful for all of us. I don't know about you, but I growing up, I I was a crier. I've always been a crier. And I, you know, I'm happy that my parents provided that space for me and they didn't never told me like, hey, big girls don't cry or anything like that. But I think even that even with that, I felt a lot of shame around crying. And so I think this conversation, I think Justin sheds a few tears in, in this yeah. episode. And I think it's really, I think we're all crying. Like oh, during, yeah. <laughs> during this episode. before, after. It was so powerful. It was so good. Before the episode, Micheline and I were putting together some questions. And one of the questions was, how do you raise your children? You have a um, daughter and a son. 
do you raise them differently? Do you raise them the same? And our expectations were that he was going to say, no, I raise my children exactly the same. I want them to grow up, whatever, being the same. But instead he came back with an answer, which I thought was like mind blowing because I wasn't expecting him to outline those differences and then explain why he raises them in different ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening today. This discussion is so important to ending the mental health stigma. If you want to help the mental health movement, you can do so by leaving a written review for this podcast to help it reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into these topics and learn more about mental health, make sure you subscribe and follow Micheline and Nadia's mental health podcast, Mind-Fully Healing, anywhere you stream your podcasts. 